0: All right, everybody, we're back with another uh, podcast today. It'll be an interviews based podcast with uh, Dr. Askew of Desert Orthopedics in Bend, Oregon. He is a foot-ankle specialist. Uh, He also does uh, trauma, so people with car accidents, ski crashes, mountain bike crashes, higher-level grade injuries, and surgical management of these trauma patients. Um, We're obviously going to be talking about foot-ankle management and getting over his insight on patient education, uh, management of different diagnoses, kind of how he viewed his integration of like rehab and uh, medical orthopedic work and some of his ideal scenarios for kind of return to play and higher end training. Um, Not only is Dr. Askew just a great doc and I've seen several of his patients and think highly of him, but I also just think he's a well-rounded individual. Uh, He's active in the community. He's got... Uh, an awesome family. He's just seems like a real wholesome person, which is harder to find these days and to find that in a doctor or something even more rare. So, uh, I really appreciate him taking the time and I know you guys will enjoy the discussion. So without further ado, Dr. Askew. All right.
1: <clears throat> All right. Dr. Askew, thank you so much for taking the time and sitting down today. Uh, you know, I've known you over the last couple of years here, but I've never actually formally gotten to sit down and talk shop on foot and ankles with you. So I'm excited to learn a little bit from you today. Um, I also know you do have experience and do a lot of uh, like trauma care as well. So I'm kind of interested on that end of things too. But for people Excellent. who don't don't know who you are, do you mind just giving a little background of like where you currently work, how you got to where you're at and kind of some of the training you went through in the, the
2: process? Sure. Well, my name is Dr. Aaron Askew, and I practice at uh, Desert Orthopedics here in Bend, Oregon. Um, I primarily uh, specialize in foot and ankle surgery and trauma. So um, foot and ankle surgery is pretty self-explanatory. Trauma is any kind of injury. Uh, typically people think of that as you know when someone breaks a bone uh, broken bones, but also includes, uh, you know, soft tissue injuries, uh, you know, torn tendons, ligaments, uh, things like that. So are you
1: yeah, asked to fix any and all things? <laughs> Is that uh, like overwhelming? I mean, it just seems to me like a lot to handle, but maybe it's, I don't know.
2: Yeah, it, it definitely uh, I enjoy it because, you know, I end up, uh, operating on upper extremities and lower extremities, yeah. arms, legs, pelvis. Um, I sometimes end up in a surgery where that involves the spine, but we definitely have excellent, uh, back surgeons, spine surgeons. Yeah. I, don't, I don't do, um, you know, regularly do broken backs, uh, that kind of thing. Yep, yeah. uh, sometimes, People think, well, maybe you do skull fractures and rib fractures, but with the way medicine's di- divided up, uh, those are treated by, typically by, uh, skull fractures are treated by neurosurgeons and rib fractures are generally treated by uh, general, general surgeries. Yeah. Okay.
1: So then how did you, what's like your career path? Like how'd you get into the whole foot ankle specialty?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, to back clear up, um, you know, why did I go into orthopedics? Yeah. Um, it's been a question that I've asked myself and, and others have asked. I think, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me. I grew up um, around craftsmen, uh, carpenters, cabinet builders, uh, furniture makers. You know, my father uh, built cabinets and furniture, homes, et cetera. Yep. My both of my grandfathers were in carpentry and that kind of work. Um, just about any uncle that I can think of <laughs> okay. involved that uh, yeah. on both my mother's side and my father's side. So, you know, um, I I wanted to go into become a doctor or go into healthcare because I really enjoyed. Um, I felt like I enjoyed you know, people. I really enjoyed science and I was interested in uh, delving into that a little bit beyond, um, you know, the craftsmanship going into cabinets and yeah, yeah. And so I spent, you know, years studying biology and then the human body. And, uh, you know, I guess it shouldn't be shocking when I came out the other end and I realized that you can do both and you can be a craftsman and carpenter yeah. and People and put their bones and joints together it just was kind of a a natural fit for me taking those skills that I learned in my dad's shop and my you know grandfather's shop and working with my uncles to you know uh, make people better put things back together and get them back to all the things that they need to do and love
1: yeah so then how did it develop into like a foot specialty then
2: yeah, so I was um, like so many other people. You're influenced by yeah. great teachers, and uh, where you have a good experience. So in my residency, originally I went to medical school, of course, at uh, here in Oregon at Oregon Health Sciences University, and then I did residency at University um, University of Nebraska and Creighton. Creighton University and University of Nebraska have a combined. Orthopedic training program, and uh, the um, attendings, the surgeons that I enjoyed the most, did trauma and foot and ankle surgery. So, as I was finishing up residency, I had to sort of choose between one or the other. You know, you do one uh, fellowship to subspecialize. So, um, it was kind of a coin toss for me. I started out and did a fellowship in uh, orthopedic trauma in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, that was fantastic. And I still had an interest in foot and ankle. And there was a couple of surgeons there. Uh, One in particular, uh, Tim Weber, who did uh, foot and ankle trauma and specialized in that. And I really enjoyed training under him and what he did. And I enjoyed the foot and ankle specialty and then there was an opportunity coming to bend because uh desert orthopedics did not have a foot and ankle specialist uh and um dr ryan said well can you do another fellowship in foot and ankle because we need that too yeah (laughs) i you know i i was like you've got to be crazy first of all (laughs) yeah i could see that (laughs) i I wasn't expecting that but it really made sense. And so, uh, orthopedics in Indianapolis had um, literally had uh, nearly 70 orthopedic surgeons in one of the largest groups in the country. And so, I, I found um, an orthopedic surgeon that was uh, excellent at foot and ankle and did a fellowship with him there. And I didn't have to move my family, I was able to stay where we had our uh, Great. Okay. Few small children and continue on training in foot and ankles. So here we are 18 years later. And I, I do both things. Wow. All
1: right. Well, obviously you're experienced and knowledgeable. Let's get into some of the, like uh, the intrinsic here of sorts, but uh, how would, like, when you have someone come in, the foot and ankles, very complex. There's, I think there's like 23 bones. There's a lot of different movements sometimes people struggle understanding complex things. How do you go about describing the biomechanics or anatomy to your patients? Do you like break out the model and just go over like the local issue they have, or is there, do you get into movements and things
2: like that? And what's your like
1: education, like in regards to just like anatomy and movement of the foot and ankle?
2: Yeah. So, um, if you could see my, uh, Exam room, my office exam room. Here, I'm holding a model of the foot, yeah, in hand, and I I point out those dozens of bones, and you know specifically for the patient where their injury is. Then I have, uh, you know, uh, illustration of all the ligaments and tendons on the wall here, along with uh, illustrations of other joints. But uh, yeah, so I I like to uh, you know, show people what, what they're looking at and, you know, take people at their different levels of understanding and hopefully move them ahead toward understanding the foot. One of the things that really, uh, helped me is, uh, it wasn't intuitive initially is to think of the foot as a, uh, a tripod and you're like, well, it doesn't look like anything i put my camera on, the foot has kind of three major contact points with the ground. Uh, we're all pretty familiar with our heel and that is yeah. one post. And then uh, at the base of our big toe, the uh, first metatersal meets the ground there. Some people call that the ball of their foot. And that's one leg of the tripod. And then the, the uh, third leg is at the base of your little toe, the fifth metatersal head. And so a lot of conditions can be explained. If you take and lengthen one leg of a tripod, you tip that tripod to one side or the other. Yeah. And so <clears throat> most people have heard of flat feet, uh, you know, a flat footed person. And in, in, uh, to maybe a little bit oversimplify that, that, that's a short leg on the tripod at the uh, big toe side. And that causes you to uh, kind of have a collapsing of the arch. uh, And some people call that pronation. Yeah. And if you have that, that uh, leg of the tripod at your, um, at your big toe, kind of the ball there, if that's really long, that's what a lot of people call high arches or supination. And in, in real broad terms, people with flat feet have more problems on the inside of their foot and ankle. Yep. And people with high arches have a lot of problems on the outside of their foot and ankle. So examples of that is uh, ankle sprains. The most common ankle sprains happen on the outside of your ankle. Um, whereas flat-footed folks you know, have more problems with pain and ligaments and tendons that stretch out. Yeah. Inside, So that might be a you know kind of a quick introductory oh, yeah, I like that to the foot uh, and ankle.
1: Um the what's your thoughts then? Just kind of piggybacking off of that on just like orthotics and shoe wear. Is that a big educational component or what do you what do you usually yeah. talk about?
2: I we we have um, quite you know quite a bit of discussion. The most common thing is that um the most common mistake is that uh it would be natural to think well i have high arches so i need a high arch support yeah Yeah. high arches um lead to ankle sprains and the higher your arch support is the more likely you are to sprain your ankle Uh, a lot of people get away with it because their arch is so high that their arch support is barely tipping their foot outward but that's probably the most common mistake. Uh, The most common reason we um, recommend arch support is for flat foot. So if if you have a flat foot that is painful, arch support can be really helpful. Flat feet that are not painful don't really need um, an arch support. It turns out that um, a, a, high percentage of the population are either have high arches or flat feet. And if you're, uh, functioning well and, uh, pain-free, it's usually not necessary to, uh, add those. Now, once you have, uh, have a patient with symptoms, that's where, you know, taking the extra time and expense to get it orthotics can be helpful, but, uh, you just have to be a little bit careful if you've got high arches, you know, you don't want to go out and spend, you know, 300, 400, $500 on custom yeah. orthotics and end up making your condition worse. So it's, it's a really good idea to, you know, talk with a trained professional, like a physical therapist or uh, an orthopedic uh, specialist about that. Yeah. I know that's something I, I struggle with is like,
1: when do you justify the $500 custom orthotic? Is it over the counter one meeting some of the similar needs where if you work on the foot and have the over the counter, are you, it's just like, yes, it's I no small fee to get the custom orthotic and who knows if it fits
2: perfect or not. It's, it's, right. it's tough. I actually encourage people to start out with, um, Uh, Commercially available over-the-counter arch supports and foot inserts. I, in fact, keep a uh, uh, little arch support, uh, actually a full-size arch support from Safeway across the street that I show people in my office. So that you know, it kind of lowers the barrier to getting that. Exactly. When you start off talking about custom molded at four hundred fifty to five hundred dollars. You know that's that isn't really in the uh financial books for most people, and unfortunately, most insurance companies don't cover, yeah, uh, customer orthotics, even with a doctor's prescription. There's a few plans, you know, yeah. that still, still have that sort of high end coverage, but uh, you yeah, you can get you know, probably 80 percent of the benefit from uh, a off the shelf insert. And uh, again, talking to a a professional about that can help, meaning I can help you uh, decide what to get. So you don't, you know, end up spending a lot of money and not getting the results. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So what do you think are some, back to kind of just anatomy and stuff, what do you think are some diagnoses that are overlooked or missed or yeah, just mismanaged in general?
2: Yeah, you know, the, the number one um, missed foot injury in terms of importance is uh, injuries of the bones at the top of the arch uh, where the, your metatarsals meet, meet the, uh, the uh, tarsal bones, which is sort of technical. We call, call those joints your lisfranc joints, so a lot of people call that their instep of their foot and uh those injuries happen when you you know step into a pothole or you know uh, classically this came from falling off a horse this frank was a uh, general in napoleon's army and people would fall off their horse and their foot would be caught in the stirrups and they would um injure the joints and bones in the middle of the arch um oh, so didn't, those... didn't know that yeah. <laughs> And, you know, not to get too graphic, but yeah. they would all amputate through that level. And so, oh, so wow. yeah, not not common anymore. Thankfully. Yes, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that that is uh, the most common miss, but probably something that people can relate to. Um, a little more is going the other direction is when you sprain your ankle, sometimes you go to the. Doctor, the urgent care, the ER, and they said that they're you've broken your ankle, and they'll use the term an avulsion fracture. And most ankle sprains with avulsion fracture are what I call a glorified ankle sprain. So the little chip of bone that pulls off is not really a broken ankle. It's it's a torn ligament that's pulled off some bone. And I tell people it's it's no different than you know when you uh, tape something to the wall and you peel it off kind of aggressively and you take some of the paint off you haven't damaged the instruction you know the structural integrity of the wall it's a cosmetic thing and uh same thing with um one of these chip fractures or wulsion fractures they're treated the same way as a, a regular ankle sprain yep and i think it took me 10 years to know that a sprain was a torn ligament and a torn ligament was a sprain. There's <laughs> there's no difference between the two. Yeah. Um, and what's... Then a fracture is, is the same as a broken bone. And, you know, we have the joke like, well, is my bone broken or is it just fractured? And and it's important for people to know that when a doctor is talking about a fracture, they're, they're talking about, you know, a break. And the, even the most severe broken bones are called fractures. So it's different than uh, in geology or something where you see a fracture can be just a minor crack that's structurally intact.
1: So let's, let's talk about that. So ankle sprains, chronic ankle sprains is incredibly common. Um, You know, in theory you sprain the ankle once the ligament becomes lax, you're more susceptible to keep spraining it but have you seen patterns there like things people aren't doing right with ankle sprain management or pushing something too quick or, uh, what are you, what are your thoughts on just the management of ankle sprains?
2: So, you know, ankle sprains, um, I would say 90 to 95% of the time, you know, resolve without, uh, enormous amount of medical management. Um, I think that where we get into trouble is, um, the patients and people who have, uh, underlying issues like, uh, high arches. Um, some, some of us are born with ligaments that, uh, have more elastin and are more elastic and they, they're more, um, mobile hypermobile. So I see those, uh, patients really need physical therapy to, compensate for their, uh, anatomy, um, and get their perineal musculature, the muscles that can provide, uh, stability, even if your ligaments are not at their best. Um, so how, how bad, to, how yeah, bad does ahead.
1: it be? How bad does the instability have to be to justify surgery?
2: Like the brostrum yeah. procedure or, um, very good questions. So, yeah. The instability um, is a very, it's very difficult for um, doctors and orthopedic surgeons and even uh foot and ankle surgeons early in training to objectively test the instability of a patient's ankle. Uh, There's a test called a drawer test where we pull on the ankle. It it took me five, seven years to really get good at that test. Yep. So I wouldn't expect patients to be able to, to know on their own that, you know, by testing their ankle for instability, but the, the key there is, um, if you're spraining over and over again, meaning it keeps happening and you're, the sprains are bad enough that they interfere with activity for days or weeks, then it should, you should get that evaluated. Um, and we use a combination of things. We look at how much pain a, a person is having with activity, how frequent their sprains are. And then we add tests like um, a physical exam with a drawer test and eventually an MRI to look at the integrity of the ankle. So it's it's one of the more complex diagnoses to be made uh, to decide that someone uh, is ready for those ligaments to be repaired. But it's also quite simple. Basically, if you're spraining your ankle over and over, physical therapy is not resolving that and you're still having pain or that um, sense that you can't trust your ankle, then it's time to consider having that ligament repaired with surgery.
1: And then what are your expectations with that surgery? Is it Like three or four months before you're cutting again or what are your
2: yeah 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 it is a surgery that uh, we have good results with and it's a surgery where uh, patients go back to the things they did before they had the problem uh in athletes it's a surgery where we're able to return people back to the their sport of choice you know whether they're a soccer player basketball player football player so it's it has, uh, very good results. Um, it does have, um, a minimum of three to four months of recovery and usually even some uh, recovery after that up to yep. six months, uh, even a year at times. So, you know, typically if an athlete has, uh, a ligament repair surgery, they don't return to sport until the next season. Uh, it's not, it's not a kind of surgery you can do mid season uh, and return, you know, during that, that yeah. sport. So if you're a, you know, a high school college professional yep. you rehab and go back the following season.
1: Okay. So what are your thoughts on ankle braces? Do you recommend them or what, what are your insights there? Do you think they are beneficial?
2: Yes. So, there is some, um, you know, a little bit of controversy. There's some um, people that think that ankle braces cause ankle weakness, you know, that they're, you know, kind of a crutch, they shouldn't be used. We use them uh, regularly, quite frequently. And our goal, of course, is to get uh, the patient to the point that their own um, structure and muscle and their ability to control their ankle is there without the need for a brace, but I, I see it as a, um, a soft brace, you know, the nylon lace up type of Velcro straps is a a very, very helpful. It can allow people to play sports, you know, before they've had surgery and, uh, still participate and say, finish out a season. It can be, um, helpful for, uh, athletes, adults that uh, want to keep playing and they have high arches, they have uh, ligaments that have a lot of elastin, so they have some uh, hypermobility. And I haven't found that, you know, athletes that wear um, heavy support or, or jobs that have heavy support around the ankle end up with weak ankles. I think an excellent example is you know, professional uh ski racers, you know, they're they're wearing, you know, a rigid boot, but you know, no one's questioning their ankle st- stability or strength. Uh, you know, true.
1: Yeah, that's a good point.
2: Folks in industries like, you know, logging, mountaineering, etc., they work, you know, very uh tight uh supportive boots and uh so forth and they're not uh, weak, you know, we don't have problems with, you know, uh, folks that wear heavy boots for, uh, mountaineering coming down with, you know, uh, excessive atrophy or anything like that. So there is, there are extremes. I, you know, we do have to put people in casts and boots and we do find, you know, uh, atrophy of their calf and that after months of casting. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't have my head buried in the sand uh, unaware that we want mobility and yeah. uh, Yeah. uh, Strengthening.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, okay. So I got another question for you. What do you notice patterns in the ankle in regards to the, the kinetic chain? Do you ever look at that kind of stuff? And by that, I mean, like, do you see people with knee OA having bad foot and ankles? Do you see people with hip or low back issues with foot and ankle issues? Do you, often try to help someone with their foot after they maybe had a knee replacement or do you notice any of those patterns in your, your clinic? The,
2: um, the connect chain, I think is extremely important. I I think there are times that um, sometimes people have too high of expectation that, you know, well, you know, I wouldn't have any back pain if my, it's got to be coming from my foot. Yeah. Yeah. The reality is, is I see people with flat feet and high arches that have no, no back problems. Right. And I, um, and those are two opposite ends of the spectrum. And then, you know, there's, there's folks, uh, you know, that do have back pain and we try to address their collapsing arches and it, it doesn't make any real difference to their back. I, I do, hundred percent believe that, you know, the, um, for example, if you're a patient that has, uh, knee osteoarthritis and you have the pattern where you have wear of the lateral part of the knee or the outside, and you're, you're a little bit knock kneed. And, uh, on top of that, you're flat footed. Um, and then, you know, even worse, you have a little bit of internal rotation of your hip yeah, you know all that uh, terrible triad. You know, three, yes. three problems compounding each other. So, in that case, um, we do we do find people that have arthritis on the outside of their knee if they're flat-footed, and we put a, a medial heel wedge that that can relieve some knee pain, and then uh, and then just the reverse with yeah, if a person's got arthritis on the other side of the knee, and you know we can. Kind of use inserts as shims, shims to change the angle of the leg to improve, uh, improve the knee or hip or back. So, on on one side, you know, I'm fully uh, aware of the connection, but you know, sometimes I have patients come with a little bit unrealistic expectations that you know they come in with a relatively normal foot and they're hoping that we can do something with it to, to fix their back. And I, I'll be honest. I, I think a lot of that is best treated by physical therapists to um, pull that, you know, pull all those things together, but the knee, the back. And so I really appreciate your specialty for integrating that uh, as well.
1: Yeah. And I imagine, excuse me, one roadblock you come across is, people just wanting a quick fix, like, Hey, do this to my foot and
2: see if it fixes me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Usually absolutely. it's
1: more complex than that,
2: but so, yeah. Right. Um, and, I, and I really appreciate people that are, you know, very intimately involved with their body mechanics and their health, but sometimes, you know, uh, they're a little disappointed that there isn't a quick fix. Yeah. Yeah. an orthotic for everything up to, you know, foot, ankle, leg. Exactly.
1: Um, let's pivot into the, the Achilles. So it's again, another common pain site and sometimes a stubborn site to resolve all the way. Um, where, what do you see as patterns behind chronic Achilles issues? Obviously there might be a change in volume or load that really sets it off, but sometimes there's not a clear ag or irritant and it just kind of develops.
2: Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, just very recently, I was having this discussion with a patient and, you know, the question was, you know, why have I had so many years of Achilles problem? Because as they've been very attentive to their health, they've always been someone who's exercised and stretched and gone to physical therapists and foot specialists Yep, and they're kind of... um, Uh, struggling with why can't they get this better? And I explained that with Achilles tendon problems, it's a convergence of things. So one really big factor is uh, your genetics. So uh, different patients have different tendon strength and uh, viability Um, I, I tried to explain this to someone the other day is just like you have, um, people with different skin characteristics. Like you have people with very sensitive skin and just, just the wrong lotion or, uh, too much sunlight, you know, they, uh, they might have damaged their skin or, um, they might have a rash or, you know, discomfort. And then you'll find another person that, you know, they can. They can put any kind of cream or lotion or that on their skin, makeup, et cetera. And they just seem to never be bothered. So that, that has its roots in, you know, the body's individual makeup. And so a big part of that is your genetics. So I see a lot of patients that just quite frankly are, are not gifted. They're trying to do all the right things, but, um, even my own, uh, I have some family members that are prone to, you know, tendonitis and stress fractures and this with, uh, running. And there's no question that, you know, although they do the stretching, the physical therapy, appropriate shoes, et cetera, they have a little bit of bad luck. So genetics is a big part of it. What can we change? You know, what, what do we have control over? So, um, another big part of it is cycles of load. So, uh, We call those overuse injuries. So if you um, strain a tendon or ligament beyond its capacity to withstand load, you're going to start getting breakdown. You start getting, you know, a certain percentage of those thousands of collagen fibers um, breaking. And our body is amazing that it does repair, but there is a rate of breakdown that can outstrip the uh, repair rate. And, uh, that's, that's when we start to get into trouble. So being, you have to start being aware of that as, uh, with your own body is, you know, what is my, uh, limit and, uh, you know, uh, Nick, you and I can't always, you know, can't always completely overcome that. So yeah. there has, there has to be some self-awareness there. Um, but we have, You know, things that can help. So you better than I are familiar with modalities that stimulate blood flow and healing things like stretching, you know, massage, ultrasound. These these are all things that stimulate the the body's ability to heal its connective tissue, which is the collagen fibers in our uh, ligaments and tendons.
1: So if someone truly tears their Achilles, what's the recent evidence these days, surgery versus non-surgery? Like, is there a profile where you'd actually say heal that conservatively? And like, what is that? Yeah.
2: So that's an excellent question. There's, um, so if you ask some of the uh, foot and ankle surgeons for the professional teams around the country, their, their research is showing that you can get the Achilles to heal without surgery, a complete tear. Uh, we use uh, special cast boots that you tip the foot down, like uh, we call it equinus, like uh, the equine, the horse position. Yeah. So we call that the kind of the ballerina position, being on point. So we have special casts and boots, which will plantar flex the foot down and get the ends of the tendon in in contact and then very gradually increase the dorsiflexion again or start bringing the foot flat again. So the research shows that that, that can work without surgery, but when, when the same surgeons are asked what they did do for their professional athletes, they take them to surgery and repair it. Yeah. (laughs) There's, there's what um, can be done and there's what actually is done. So I've, I've done both and had good results. I can tell you this, that um, the non-operative treatment uh, regimen is very labor intensive and very uh, psychologically difficult for patients because there's always this risk of if you step wrong, you can retear and start over it's very unforgiving. You can't yeah. have a bad day and you know accidentally step down on your ankle because it's not sutured together to pop apart. So it it's uh, labor intensive and fairly difficult and and you end up spending quite a bit of time in the cast uh, device. So we definitely do that in cases where one, the patient asks for that, two, where the risks of surgery are higher. So if you have, uh, skin healing problems, rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, uh, yeah. lung issues with age, et cetera. Um, and I've ha- had really good results, you know, with rapid rehab now, you know, weight bearing is tolerated as soon as the is healing with surgical treatments. So there is a little bit of discontinuity between the, uh, lab research on this and the real life uh application
1: okay okay um so then what's your standards there if someone has traditional surgery how long do you tell them until they can be back to activities
2: yeah again it's it's right around that uh three to four months time We okay It depends what activities you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Getting off of crutches and weight bearing, we start that after the incisions healed at uh, two to three weeks. So that's one of the most important activities. But I assume you're talking about, you know, running. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Those kind of things. Yeah. Being, etc. So yeah, that that's going to really just the first days of starting that with your physical therapists are going to be around three and a half to four months out where you start that. And again, six months to a year to be back at your previous competitive level, you know, or whether you're competing with your own PR or, you know, competing against uh, another uh, opponent, so to speak.
1: Yeah. 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 Do you sometimes use like, uh, non-surgical interventions for these kind of soft tissue things like PRP or I don't, I don't know what
2: yeah interventions you use those, those we we here at our clinic have uh, we call that regenerative medicine and uh, uh, Jonathan Swift uh, one of our uh, physical medicine rehab physicians uh, physiatry physicians does quite a bit of that as well as Dr. Goodman and uh, uh, Dr. McCleary, that PRP is platelet-rich plasma. So it is known that uh, if you take someone's blood and you spin it in a centrifuge, that uh, there's a layer that's rich in platelets that happens to have a lot of the uh, cells, the progenitor cells that are involved in uh, musculoskeletal tissue healing yeah. and then be um, spun down and then injected at the site of injury. What I've found is that that leads to more rapid healing. Um, and what we, you know, what we'd love to have is something that takes the healing time from 12 weeks to like three days, you know, that would be yeah. fantastic. <laughs> you, shoot it in, you jump ahead three or four months in your recovery what I've found is that it's a kind of a, a supplement to healing. It makes, it increases the speed of the healing by, uh, some percentage, you know, somewhere between, you know, 10 and 15, maybe 20% faster healing. Um, or sometimes we see it in a percentage of likelihood to heal. So, you know, if you had say a, uh, you only had a ten percent chance that you were going to heal without surgery. It might increase your chances to thirty percent. So, it's it's not the uh, complete game changer that we'd like it to be, but it is a option that uh, has helped some people kind of, you know, just get over the hump and and uh, heal without surgery. So you add that to physical therapy and to Uh, a certain amount of activity modification and rest, uh, massage, ultrasound. And I think, you know, I used to, uh, sometimes I explained to a patient, if you have a $100 problem, each of these things is paying your debt toward having resolution of your problem. So, you know, physical therapy is paying $20 toward your $100 debt. And then PRP might add another $20 and Taking some time off from the sport is another 20. And you can see that now we're at $60. So you you keep you keep adding um treatments and you get closer to closer your goal. But until you pay that hundred dollar debt to your Achilles, you're still not gonna be able to uh say run without pain. Yeah. And, And that that's the way to see it is it's not does. PRP or stem cells, uh, or ultrasound work, it's how much of the problem does it address? What percent of the, uh, ultimate fix is it? So I think that's where people get confused. Uh, they feel like it's an all or nothing deal, like it either it worked or didn't. And when you hear stories of someone who, uh, it worked for them, it means they were just, you know, they were just twenty percent or twenty dollars away from meeting that debt, and and then they had success. Uh, yeah. What you don't know is, you know, how 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 much you know they needed to get over the hump and recover.
1: Yeah, yeah, I like the way you you phrase that. Uh, you know, yeah, if you're a biomechanical mess with twenty other things going on, a PRPA in a single joint probably isn't going to fix yeah.
2: it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that is just not quite enough. Not that it didn't help, but it just, you know, you got the shot and two weeks later you go, you know, and try to complete your marathon training and run your 20 miler and you come back and like, well, my Achilles still hurts. Yeah. Yeah. You haven't quite paid your debt to that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well the next like little pathology I want to talk about is stress fractures. One, it can be difficult to diagnose i mean obviously if you have images to be helpful but the subjective component as well as some table tests and things like that but i think it also gets tricky in that there's so many variables that drive it so if someone does have a stress fracture I would say it's not surgical they're in a boot or whatnot what mm-hmm. really what led to it is it diet is it uh Stress? Are they over exercising? Is it a biomechanical thing? Like it can be a tricky scenario to to manage. Yeah. Um, Where do you commonly see stress fractures in the the foot and ankle?
2: So, the um, common places to get a stress fracture are the uh, uh, metatarsal bases. So, this is again the top of the arch uh, near where we were talking about where Frank did the amputations. Um, So especially at the second and third metatarsal, we can see uh, really devastating stress fractures at the navicular, which is a little higher in the arch, just below the ankle. Um, We've seen them in the uh, neck of the talus. The talus is the foot bone that uh, articulates with your leg, your tibia bone. And those, you know, uh, in rare cases can be very devastating. Um, To talk about like what is the cause, the, you know, the first of all, the cause is, uh, you know, more cycles of load to the foot than it's able to bear. So, you know, and it's usually because people are ramping up too quickly, too much. Meaning, um, you know, you know, say if you're training for a sport or running, you know, starting off too quickly and adding uh, strain and cycles of load, uh, at a rate that your foot can't adjust to. So, you know, going, instead of transitioning from running two to three miles to bumping it up to four to five, you know, you go for, you know, uh. Ten or fifteen miles, and uh, try to run—you know—kind of a max speed. Those kind of things can lead to stress fractures. Now, you know what's really frustrating is patients say, "Well, I, I did my training just like everyone else, and I have a stress fracture, and they don't." And that's where uh, genetics and mechanics comes in. Yeah. Since we can't change our genetics, we'll we'll focus on—you know—backing off on the rate of training, uh, resting, which is, you know, the hardest thing, right. You yeah. know, nobody to be put on six weeks of rest in the middle of their training program. Um, so emphasizing, um, biomechanics can be, you know, really important. So if you have someone who's, um, overloading their, uh, metatarsal, you know, at first we're going to have them, you know, first stop running. Second, we're going to put them in a, uh, Walker boot or cast boot. Uh, we're going to definitely institute that time, some cross training, some other modalities. So, uh, water exercise, cycling, uh, physical therapy to maintain, you know, the function of the strength of the calf and leg and foot muscles while you're resting. But after, uh, you know, a month or so in a, uh, walker boot, you know, then, then we're looking at starting off using an art support to support that metatarsal and the whole time working, uh, with a physical therapist to gradually increase the activity level. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then do you see like, uh, like the female, Athlete triad being a common part of that too, if we're yes. kind of, yeah. Yeah, whole, we do. Well,
2: um, that's where, where I, you know, I'll ask people if they're missing menstrual cycles, are they, uh, do they have any history or trouble with eating disorder? Um, and, you know, many times it's not as an eating disorder, but people are trying to cut back on uh, calories and food intake to, uh, you know, decrease body weight and, uh, try to, uh, you know, be as lean as they can for their sport. Yeah. Yeah. And we, and we have perfect time. Nick Hagan, uh, Michael Dennis is here. I think oh, he really? Be- uh, <laughs> uh,
1: hey, Nick. hey, how's it going?
2: <laughs> hey, uh, Nick, can we take a little break for Michael to ask a question?
1: Sure. Okay. All right. We're back. We're back at live here. So, what's, yeah, we're kind of finishing up stress fractures. We were talking about the female athlete triad. We were talking a little bit about biomechanical faults, maybe leading to it. Um, And basically, I think to summarize kind of what you were saying is, there's lots of layers and you got to make sure you're addressing these layers versus just booting them and hoping it all gets better. Once the boot goes off.
2: Yes. Uh, and I definitely would recommend working with a physical therapist through that process. Um, you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, we have the uh, easy job of finding a boot, the hard job of telling people that they you know, got to quit running for a while. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or, you know, you name the activity cross train or something. Yeah. yeah. Cross yeah. Train. And yeah. Uh, then, you know, working with a physical therapist like yourself, you can find ways to avoid all of the, the, not all of them, but you know, most of the issues that people fear the most, like not being able to exercise, gaining weight, getting atrophy, yeah. you know, really getting weak. Yeah. Um, so you know, without having the same cycle of load impact on yeah. with whichever bone is involved.
1: Yeah. All right. So my, my last question for you is if you could stand on a soapbox and make a big announcement regarding like foot and ankle health, what do you, what do you think most people are doing wrong? Doing too much of too little of what's like a, the thing you always see in clinic
2: and you're like, gosh, <laughs> this again, or is there yeah, any th- I, th- yeah. I think the number one thing is, um, adequate rest, um, rest, having, you know, rest days built into your training regimen. Uh, and also once you have an injury being willing to listen to those around you, uh, your doctor, your orthopedic surgeon, your physical therapist. And, um, we all, we all, really benefit from the mental health, uh, benefits of exercise, but there's also got to be, um, some, uh, balance achieved and, uh, it might mean, you know, getting a, uh, meditation app and, yep. uh, you know, getting onto, uh, calm or headspace for, for 20 minutes Yep, uh, while you're foot is elevated and and you're resting and you know substituting that for a moment for you know a uh six mile run.
1: Yeah like rest is relative right so instead of running yeah maybe you do some strength workout or you swim or you yeah yeah I think rest people hear that word they think I gotta sit and do nothing for the next six weeks and that's not the answer either.
2: Exactly. Um, And that's that's why I, I uh, refer people to physical therapy to help with that. Uh, cause it's hard, you know, it's hard if you're, if you're kind of a one sport, uh, you know, exerciser or athlete, or, you know, yeah. you don't have to be, you know, paid for your sport. Yeah. But if you have one thing that really works with your schedule and, and you love it, it's yeah. really hard to imagine that yeah. anything else could replace that. And there, yeah. there are ways to do it and it takes a little time to get, to develop that uh you know develop a routine with a new activity
1: yeah and there's there's so many layers to it right that that running is maybe their only time they get out of the house and away from the kids for 45 minutes <laughs> or right. you know the, the crossfit guy who that's like his community and his family and he can't knock yeah. to across it there's there's more there's it's complex uh um, yeah
2: uh I'm very understanding of that having, you know, been a runner, been in yeah. CrossFit and yeah. you understand the need for that. And also having five kids and the need to yeah. get out of that. <laughs>
1: <house>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You sympathize
1: then. Um, all right. The Last question I ask everybody is the theme of this podcast is optimizing capacity in any and all fronts. What, what are you doing for yourself this year? Uh, what are you trying to get better as books you're trying to read something you're trying to do more or less of what are you yeah. trying to work on yourself?
2: I'm um, listening to Glennon Doyle's podcast. We can do hard things. Yep. I am uh, using my um, headspace and call map more, you know, with COVID and this has been probably one of the harder years for most of us. Yep. Um, I, I took some time off of work and, took a sabbatical and I'm back and you. feeling a lot better good uh, yeah so that's that's where I'm at
1: yeah awesome and then if people are kind of local to central Oregon where can people find you just uh web page yeah. where how do they get
2: in touch with you yeah so we're we're at uh desert orthopedics uh you can just type desert orthopedics into your smartphone and you'll find us we have yeah. um we're on Instagram and Facebook. Our phone number at Desert Orthopedics is 541-388-2333. And uh, yeah, we have locations on the east side of Bend, Oregon, uh, near the uh, hospital in town, St. Charles Hospital. We have a location in Redmond and our uh, newest locations on the west side of Bend, uh off of uh simpson near near century drive and just about everybody here knows where the Safeway is on yeah (laughs) we're just a kitty corner from that
1: yeah all right well again i really appreciate the time very informative and uh yeah maybe we can do this again down the road sometime
2: yeah this has been a good time and thank you for inviting me yeah
1: yeah yeah
0: appreciate it all right Hey guys, before you go, I want to say thank you for making the time to listen to this podcast and provide all the great feedback you provided before. This podcast, the information we provide, and the people we're trying to help wouldn't be the same without you guys, so really appreciate it. If you want to learn more uh, regarding content, exercises, uh, thoughts about different health and wellness principles, follow us at capacity.pt on Instagram. We have capacity performance therapy on Facebook. Or just go to capacitypt.com to find more information. Again, appreciate it and look forward to sharing more fun content.